Good evening and welcome to this Retina UK information webinar. This is one of a series of webinars we'll be hosting and we'll be delivering at least one on a different topic each month. In our first Ask the Expert session, uh, which is this evening, we are really pleased to have with us today Simon Keatley. Uh, Simon is a consultant ophthalmic surgeon and also the Director of Examinations for the International Council of Ophthalmology. With more than 35 years in the field, he will be answering your questions this evening. We are also joined today by Kate Arkell, our Research Development Manager. Uh, she'll also be answering some of your questions along with Simon. So if you haven't already asked your questions um, during the registration process, you can either type your, um, your question in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens, and these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. So please do leave your questions throughout the presentation this evening, and we will answer as many as we possibly can. Um, if we're not able to get your questions this evening, we will be following up your questions over the next couple of weeks. So thank you once again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce to you Simon and Kate. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, before we kick off with questions, Simon, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit more about your career? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, everybody. Good evening. And uh, very nice to, uh, to join you in this webinar. I hope I can answer some of your questions um, uh, as best as, as I can. I mean, I am uh, a jobbing ophthalmologist, basically. Um, I've been working in the NHS for the past 30 odd years. Um, and uh, but in fact retired uh, from uh, clinical practice about uh, two years ago now. So uh, I haven't actually touched a patient for, for some time and I miss them very much. Um, but nonetheless, I keep my brain ticking over um, uh, pretty well by doing um, uh, exams. I examine, I examine my, uh, my uh, junior colleagues, which actually is very interesting and, and great fun. And I'm, I'm, I learn an awful lot about that. Um, uh, I, I've also done a bit of um, um, uh, work for the DVLA, which I still continue to do sometimes on, 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 on driving uh, and visual impairment. So that might be a, an interesting uh, one for, for any questions that come up. Um, but, uh, but I am very much a, a, a clinical ophthalmologist. So um, uh, academic ophthal uh, ophthalmology, especially all the science and the gene stuff, I may well uh, pass right over to uh, uh, Kate um and uh, uh and hopefully she can she can she can help me out um uh, as a trustee of retina uk um i i i we are blessed really um by uh, with the medical advisory board uh, headed up by um tara moore from belfast and and uh, she is a, a huge asset to us uh, trustees um and uh, she and her um uh, colleagues uh, uh, really do help us uh, decide what um, uh, research that we, we should get involved with and, and support. So that's me, um, and hopefully uh, I can uh, answer some of your questions. So fire away. Excellent. Thank you very much, Simon. So um, obviously we've had some questions in before this evening, and I've sort of roughly split those into clinical sort of questions. So questions people might ask about things they can do now. Um, and also then some research questions, which I was going to sort of put after the clinical questions. So everybody who's listening, if you do think of a question, um, uh, especially if it's a little bit more of a practical question, do pop that in the Q&A box um, as soon as you can. As Simon says, he has a wealth of knowledge um, about uh, driving and visual loss because of his work with the DVLA. So if there are any questions about that, uh, he would obviously be very able to answer those for you. Um, but um, the first question um, that we had in prior to this evening was actually about registration, so sight loss registration. So um, the question says, when someone has a sight test and meets the criteria for registration, whether partially or severely sight impaired, is this discussed with them at their medical appointment with their ophthalmologist? Um, this person, I think, is a professional and says, we very often get calls asking how to register. People don't seem to know. Is it standard practice to discuss this? And what should people do, I guess, if it hasn't been discussed? Yeah, I mean, I was actually quite surprised to get this question, to be honest, actually, because I think certainly in my experience, um, we always uh, uh, ask uh, people about um, registration, you know, and. Uh, 
uh, I'm, I'm slightly disappointed in my colleagues, really, that uh, that it hasn't. Some some, some people have slipped slipped through the net. Um, I, registration is really really important for people um, who do have a visual um, uh, impairment, um, but obviously there has to be um, uh, clinical guidelines for this. Um, I mean, basically, how you how it, how you register somebody is you fill in a what's called a CVI form, a certificate of visual impairment. Um, and and you probably know this uh, all, all the audience, but but there are two types. There there is a, um, sight impaired and severely sight impaired, which used to be called partially sighted and blind in 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 the old days, but it's now changed to to those two uh, categories. Um, and each of those has a specific uh, clinical um, criteria to actually um, be adhered to. Um, and uh, for uh, you know, so so uh, if if you have a really lousy central vision, in other words, you can't actually read the top letter on the uh, on the on the standard Snellen chart in the eye clinic, um, then um, uh, you are certainly uh, eligible to be uh, registered either sight impaired or, or, or severely sight impaired. Um, and uh, it's really really important uh, to, to 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 do that for your um, benefit, really. I mean, I think. Um, uh, what I would, what what normally happens, certainly in my experience, is that if 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 I find a patient who has got a really bad sight impairment, we I always say, well, do you think we ought to consider you as uh, uh, for, for for registration? We're not forcing anybody to do anything, and and people might find that it's an impediment and don't want it. I mean, I've had several people who say, no, I don't want to do that. Um, but I think on the whole, it is it is a very useful uh, thing to do. Um, I, I, I think quite a lot of clinics are, are blessed with a, um, an ECLO, an eye clinic liaison officer, uh, who picks these um, people up often before they even see the consultant uh, and then puts them uh, and, and suggests that that's what they do. The form has to be filled in by a consultant of the monitor. It can't be anybody else. It can't be a, a healthcare uh, worker. It can't, can't, it can't be a, um, uh, a, a junior doctor. It has to be a consultant. Right. So I, I do have to see them in at the outset, uh, and I always, uh, and I'm sure most of my colleagues actually do actually um, uh, register them. Mm. And, and I think for those people out there who not sure what 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 it involves, what's the advantages? Well, I mean, it is an advantage uh, in a huge way because I think anybody who's registered uh, gets um, uh, referred to um, social services for for an assessment at at, at home. Um, and um, uh, and basically, it, it really they really assess what you need for everyday help, such as uh, you know, cooking and cleaning, um, um, uh, keeping um, keeping in touch with the family, uh, uh, and help with transport. You know, uh, and uh, it, it can issue you with a, a blue badge. Obviously, if you're registered, you can't drive a car, but you can give the car the card to your your badge to your family, who can then park in uh, more accessible areas for you. Uh, and it also gives you a half price television license, which I thought was really great, very handy. <laughs> Slightly ironic, I think that, but um, nonetheless, <laughs> it does give you help. Uh, and it gives you help with council tax bills, free public transport, free prescriptions. So I think it is definitely worth doing. Uh, and if you don't, uh, and if you and if you feel that you need to be res registered and you it hasn't and the subject hasn't been broached please uh, talk to talk to the uh, the eye clinic um, and they will I'm sure certainly put you in the right direction and even if you're not registered um, and have a visual visual handicap I think it's fair to say Kate isn't it that that you can you, you can ask for a social um, uh, services assessment anyway can't you I think you I think you can. Uh, Matt might know more about that yes, you might, than I, think... I do so feel free to butt in Matt yeah sure um, I do you want to just comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. You don't actually have to be um, registered as yeah. sight impaired or severely sight impaired to have an assessment. Um, you, you can just ask your local um, sensory team for, yeah. for an assessment. And, and, the, and the GP would do it as well, I think, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, we are aware for any professionals that are listening um we are aware and i think the sight loss charity sector as a whole is aware that there are sadly a reasonable proportion of people who don't seem to get offered registration as a default there are people slipping through the net somehow or other um so if there are professionals listening i think 
just be aware that well for everybody listening retina uk is working really hard we are aware of the problem and we're working with our sight loss sector colleagues to address this issue but if there are any professionals listening i think the key thing to be aware of is that this don't take for granted that this conversation has been had um, and if you ask the question by all means and assist people in getting back to their ophthalmologist if needed as simon says it needs to be a consultant ophthalmologist um we have had a question in i think simon that uh, matt's just sent me which actually i think fits quite nicely hmm. is um what do the numbers mean when you've had a sight test for example 660 2020 okay. yeah yeah fair enough actually i mean in the uk we use the metric system which is which is six over something um rather than the 2020 one which is which is uh, american so I'll, I'll concentrate on that i mean the standard um uh, uh, Snellen chart, which is the sort of the, the, the large letters going down to the very small letters at the, at the, at the bottom. Um, the, uh, the, the normal person, normal in inverted commas basically, means um, that at, uh, the, the chart is placed six metres away from the, from the patient or three metres and a mirror. So it, it basically doubles the distance. So you're six metres away effectively. Um, and uh, the normal person should should be able to see the second line from the bottom, basically, which is called six six. Uh, the top letter is uh, the, the biggest one at the top is is six sixty, which means a normal person should see that letter at sixty meters away. Um, so if you're actually six over sixty, your visual acuity, you are actually uh, about uh, ten times worse, if you like, than a normal person. I, I mean, I hope that makes sense. Um, the 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 standard Snellen charts, which I was it, which was universal in my days, now being replaced by logmark charts, which are slightly more complicated. Um, uh, they've got more letters uh, on the uh, on each row. Uh, and uh, often they're computer controlled and each letter does actually change. So you can't actually memor memorize the <laughs> job, which I know some people have done. <laughs> um, and uh, so they so they do uh, uh, so they are changing a little bit, but effectively it's the same uh, the same thing. Uh, and if you're registered um, severely sight impaired, uh, you should be worse than three over 60, which basically means that if you sit uh, at three meters, uh, from the chart, which is half the normal distance, you can only just see the top letter. Uh, and uh, if you if you're if you're worse than that, you're severely sight impaired. Um, uh, and and sight impaired is basically if you're between six sixty ice the top letter at six meters uh, and the top letter at three meters, then you're 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 sight impaired. I hope that makes sense. Yes. I think it does. Uh, actually... oh, I'm, I'm sorry. The other thing that we also think to talk about about, about that is is not only is he, is it the central visual acuity, it's also the the visual field, and obviously, which is very relevant to uh, um, uh, inherited retinal diseases like um, uh, retinitis pigmentosa, when your field is actually restricted down, so you can actually have a better central vision. Um, yet have a really bad um, peripheral vision and still be registered as severely sight impaired. This actually links really beautifully, Simon, into a question that's come in. It's actually to do with driving and peripheral ah. vision. So what okay. are the slight requirements to have a driving license? I've yep. always been frustrated that my visual acuity is really good, yep. but I have limited peripheral vision. Yep. Yep. Surely a motorcycle helmet will limit peripheral vision in yep. a similar sort of way. Very so good question. Very good question, which has been used, which has been used quite a lot in courts and things actually about, okay. about yeah, so, which I have been involved with. But yeah, okay. So the 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 um driving limits, uh, the driving regulations are um it's pretty simple in this country, uh, thank goodness. Um, you have to read a number plate at 20 meters with both eyes open, full stop. Um, uh, and that is the central visual acuity requirements. And that, um, uh, it, so that basically means you'd have one eye and, and, and still pass the, 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 um, uh, driving, uh, the driving plate test, number plate test. Um, uh, and it equates on the Snellen chart to six over nine, which is about an, which is another line up from the normal, if you see what I mean. So three lines down, uh, three lines from the bottom of the, the chart, uh, with one eye uh, is all you need to to drive a car. We're talking about a Group One car. Uh, lorries and buses are, uh, as you might expect, slightly different. And I'm not going to confuse the issue by going into that. But there are regulations for those uh, HGVs. 
But a uh, car, uh, you need to read the number plate at 25, uh, 20 meters, uh, 25 yards as it was. Um, in addition, you have to have a good visual field. And the visual field is, is, is actually um, defined as 120 degrees on the horizontal, which basically means if you close one eye, you've got about 120 degrees. If you, if, it depends on how big your nose is, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> it's, it's in the way. It's in the way. Um, but, um, but it's about 120 degrees on the horizontal um, uh, with no significant defects in the central areas as well. So uh, if you've got blind spots in the middle of your vision, then, you're, then that's, that's bad news. Uh, and if you've got less than 120 degrees, that's also bad news. Um, that does give um, people with um, early RP, for instance, a reasonable chance of driving. Um, but obviously, as the as the field encroaches on your, uh, on, on the centre, then sadly that actually um, uh, is, is 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 reduced. Crash helmets. I mean, I'm a motorcyclist actually, so I I, I wear a crash helmet. Uh, it gives you quite a lot more than 120 degrees, uh, to be honest. Um, uh, 120 degrees is remarkably small. Um, uh, but it, and it always worries me a little that you know even with 120 degrees you're going to miss some something on the periphery like a, a, a child rushing out to chase a ball and things like that. But it has been well proven and and it, and it's been it's been that standard for quite some time now actually. Uh, people have challenged it, but uh, it's pretty accurate. Okay. Thank I hope you. that helps everybody. Yeah, I think that's a really comprehensive answer, actually. And it, and it's good to have that analogy with the motorcycle helmet. I've never thought yeah. of that, but yeah, it's no, but they're absolutely right. personal experience of that. And yeah, 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 sure. Um, so um, moving on to cataract. Um, okay. So a couple of questions about cataract. So one, the first one is, would it be appropriate? Well, it is appropriate. So I'll say, are there any potential complications of having one eye operated on for cataracts and one eye delayed? Um, so the latest, this particular person has got, has obviously had one eye operated on, but their consultant's now retiring and they've been waiting a long time for a, for a date for the second eye. Is that a problem? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Actually, I mean, cataracts. One of it's uh, it's, it's the actually it's the cataract surgery is the commonest operation performed in the world. Isn't that amazing? And the, 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 the number that, yeah. of the number of cataract operations that are performed outweigh by far the number of other operations performed. It's quite interesting, isn't it? And it's the oldest operation ever described. I hope you're really yes, um, yeah. It's uh, you know Romans used to do it, and uh, it, wow. It, it's a it's a really very 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 old operation. We don't quite do it the Roman way now, uh, and it is actually it is actually quite a clever clever operation, and, and really is the was the the meat of my whole career. Really, I used to, and and I really do miss uh, doing cataract operations. I have to say, it's a lovely 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 operation, and I get a lot of thanks from grateful patients, which is great. Um, and an RP sadly, you often do get cataracts. Quite quite a common. Um, uh, uh, um, finding. Uh, so we do quite a few um, RP patients. Um, so to answer the question, um, and, and just to go on, go on from that, sorry, cataracts, cloudiness of the lens for those people who don't know. The eyes like a camera, um, RP affects the, ref, uh, the film at the back of the camera, cataracts affect the lens inside the eye. So surgery is to remove the lens and to put a plastic one in its place. Uh, which works remarkably well, takes about 15 minutes to do uh, and is a hugely successful um, operation. If you do one eye, um, which is what the question relates to really, um, it depends on the state of the second eye, uh, but usually they do, they are, one is slightly worse than the other often and the, the, that standard is to do the worst eye and then you do the, sec the second eye. Um, Really, as soon as you can, provided um, the uh, the first eye goes well. Um, so, uh, you know, ideally, you know, a month later it would be great to do that. But in the real world, with a good old NHS being what it is, uh, it's often delayed, and you know, consultants retiring don't help. Um, so, uh, it is difficult, and certainly when you've had one eye done, and you know, um, patients always say, "Oh, that's fantastic, doc." When can I have the other one done? Because you know they want the second eye done. 
So having to wait for uh, the second eye to be done is actually must be hugely frustrating for, for anybody. In addition, it puts the eye, it puts the poor old brain out because it, it, it's been used to looking through slightly grotty eyes for quite some time before the surgery. Um, and if you have one done, then the other eye doesn't quite know what's going on. And you, you do feel very um, unbalanced uh, for quite some time. Um, I mean, it doesn't do you any harm to, to leave the cataract where it is uh, medically, unless you leave it for many, many years. But I think that on the whole, um, it's best to do the cataract, uh, the second eye, uh, as soon as you can, um, after, the, after, the first, after the first one, really. Um, you know, um, so, and interestingly, now some centres are offering the two eyes to be done simultaneously, one after the other on the same operating table. Okay. Uh, we, 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 we rather were anxious about that back in the day when I was doing most of my cataracts surgery because of potential infection between the two eyes. If you get an infection, okay. it's a very rare event, but if you get an infection in one, if you've done them both at the same time, you could easily get two eyes being infected. And obviously that's a devastating complication. Um, but some people now are doing it and using different instruments and different uh, drapes and things like that for the each eye, but on the same uh, operating table and and it becoming it's becoming more popular now quite a lot of my colleagues are now doing that and I can understand why uh, because the risks are very small now I mean we do we use very small incisions and the risks are remarkably small I mean I think to answer your um, question uh, the, your questioner's question is you know they ought to um, uh, ring the um, uh, the previous uh, consultant's um, secretary uh, say, come on, um, I, I, I need my second eye done. I'm feeling very un unbalanced. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would suggest that they try and, you know, be proactive in getting that done as, as quickly yeah. as they can, basically. Yeah. OK, I hope um, if that person's listening, I really hope you can get yeah. that sorted soon. And we had um, a little, a very quick little follow up question to your to your fun facts. Um, do you know what the Romans used as a replacement lens? <laughs> no, they didn't. no, even when, when I was training, even though it was about 35, 30 odd years ago, um, we didn't put lenses in. I mean, because uh, the lenses, oh, I, I won't bore you too much. So len interocular lenses are the most uh, amazing. It's a, it's, it's a great story. Um, the, um, in the, during the war, um, uh, uh, fighter pilots um, had, uh, were sh when they were shot up, <laughs> uh, the, the plastic of their canopy um, often went into the eye. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, there was a chap called Harold Ridley, who was an eye surgeon from St. Thomas's uh, during during the war. He actually noticed that the actual plastic that actually got into the eye from the canopy, usually made of perspex, was very inert. And if you left it, nothing happened. Okay. And it was, and it was some bright spark of a medical student who was who was who was working with Harold Ridley, saying, "Well, look, why don't you put a why don't you put a plastic fashioned it into a lens and use it to replace the lens that you take out with camera?" Uh, okay. Isn't that clever? Yeah. Uh, and so the, that was born, and the first one was put in in 1949, I think, actually. And it's been going ever since. But the Romans didn't do that, and neither did I when I was training. <laughs> so you, <laughs> it wasn't, you just wasn't took quite it. 1949, but we weren't doing very many. <laughs> <laughs> no, they they would you'd have just been taking it out and not yes just been taking it out and you give me very 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 thick glasses to compensate okay. which yeah. gave, gave you horrendous distortion and things like that yeah okay Fabulous. sorry that was not quite much in the uk material no, no, it's interesting. interesting nonetheless and obviously <laughs> as you say simon we do have a significant proportion of our community who are affected by cataracts so Absolutely. it's always interesting and actually yeah. Our next question um, is, is still on cataracts, but obviously from a professional. Yeah. Saying we have a client who has Usher syndrome, so that's yeah. very much in our uh, wheelhouse, um, is yeah. in her mid-40s and has cataracts in both eyes. Her eye consultant is stating that cataract surgery would not be helpful for her. Um, she has two cochlear implants for her hearing loss, which have been very successful, and we think she's unlikely to be resistant to surgery to improve her vision. She has no other health concerns, no glaucoma, no diabetes. Yeah. What could she do next? Is this yeah. a case of the consultant perhaps not explaining their thinking? 
Yeah, I, I would I would guess I do despair sometimes of my uh, my colleagues' communication skills, um, but um, yeah, I mean, ashes, as as I'm sure people know, is a condition which with which retinitis pigmentosa is associated with severe, severe deafness, and cataract is certainly a complication of that as well. Uh, and obviously, this uh, this uh, client of yours has uh, fantastic hearing now because of cochlear implants, and that's brilliant. And it would be it seemed logical that you know removing the cataracts might actually improve the vision, but I. I I guess the 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 retinitis pigmentosa behind the cataract, if you like, is just got become so advanced that um, removing the uh, cataract is not going to give much in the way of visual improvement. And I guess that's probably what the consultant is actually meaning. Mm. I mean, but having said that, it's really it's really very difficult, isn't it? And I've done, I've, I must admit, I've actually done um, uh, quite a lot of cataract operations in people with, for instance, macular degeneration with really, really very poor central vision, um, but quite a significant cataract uh, uh, in addition. But the cataract surgery will let more light into the eye and yeah. therefore, you know, maybe may improve a little bit of navigational vision. So, you know, it may well be that even if they have got a really um, awful retina, um, removing the cataract might make a difference. But it's communication, isn't it, Kate, actually? I mean, you've just got to talk to the patient, basically. And I think... I think you, 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 I mean that that particular patient has to ask the uh, consultant to give a you know a reasonable um, uh, a reason for that uh, decision and, and and enter into a into a uh, proper consultation and and of course that patient is always entitled to a second opinion you know absolutely we're actually, always yes. entitled to a second opinion and uh, please don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion it's really really important and you know it's no big deal for the consultant you know. Um, you know, he, he he will be very happy, I'm sure, to uh, to to recommend somebody else if uh, if that's the case. But uh, but you know, unfortunately, that the second opinion may be exactly the same opinion as the first. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's... it's just a matter of of uh, encouraging consultants to explain their Correct. thinking, and in Correct. that case, you know, it might put it to rest. But uh, but you'll be, be interested to know that the examination uh, that I that I do that I run. Uh, has quite a lot of communication skills uh, stations in it, uh, and one of the uh, exam questions is this p exact uh, um, scenario that there's been. Questions, oh wow! Okay, which is actually very good. So, uh, so that's yeah. terrific. <laughs> Idea, yeah, yeah. Okay. Excellent. So um, that's all we've got for cataract at the moment. Um, we've we've got um, a little a question here that actually crosses over into neurological disease. So yeah. uh, my husband has RP. He was diagnosed with that about 25 years ago. For the past few years, has also had double vision. Last September, he was diagnosed with atypical Parkinsonism, um, which is this lady has said um, it's like a MSA PSP crossover. Those are, are two neurological conditions affecting different parts of the brain. Yeah. And we have been told that the progressive supranuclear palsy part, so the PSP part, is linked to his eyes. Are RP and PSP related or is it just a coincidence? Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear this story. Actually, it, it, it must be really very difficult for her, actually. And uh, I sympathise entirely, actually. It really is very, very tough. I mean, progressive supranuclear palsy, um, and as you say, as you pointed out, is, is certainly an atypical Parkinsonian type uh, syndrome. Um, uh, it's just a buildup of um, certain protein in, in certain parts of the brain. And basically, it gives you a it's sort of a Parkinsonian type um, symptoms like falling over, you know, difficulty with speech, difficulty swallowing, but in addition, it actually affects the, the eye movements, um, especially the vertical movements, and, and patients often do get double vision, which obviously this patient has, has, has had um, uh, for some time, uh, and it's really, really very difficult to, 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 to deal with. Um, uh, interestingly, Doug, Dudley Moore, who, uh, who was one of my heroes, um, sadly died of PSP, um, and Linda Rumstadt has got it as well, actually, which I didn't know, but, uh, uh, but it's, it's not uncommon, um, but very, very difficult to treat. And, and I do feel very sorry for people with it. It, it is undoubtedly related to genetic um, uh, problems. There's no doubt about that. Um, but as far as I know, it's not associated with RP. The, the, mm -hmm. the genes involved are actually very different. Um, uh, there is some retinal degeneration involved in, in PSP, but um, it's not of the retinal, it's not of the retinitis pigmentosa uh, type. Um, so I think it's purely coincidental, and that's just such bad luck. 
to have two pretty nasty diseases, you know, all in one, really. And just to clarify, the genetic component of PSP, um, as far as I'm aware, is not a monogenetic situation. No, it's not. It's more no, of a, so no, it's not going to be passed not. down through the family. No, no that's that good, a good point. Yes, you're absolutely right. No, it's not. Yeah. No, no. no. Um, if you're listening, please don't worry that there are two um, yeah. heritable conditions going on. Yes, exactly. And, Thank you for that. You're um, right. Oh. Yeah, but certainly it, it is unrelated by sheer coincidence my uh pre I previously worked for the PSP association so um I do know a little bit about PSP yeah yeah um so yeah um I hope you're getting lots of support if you're listening um there was a question here which I think is a little bit of a crossover um between um research and, and the clinical aspects so how do you see screening for or diagnosis of RP developing in the future yeah, well, that's an interesting one, isn't it, actually? I mean, you know, as we all know, it's RP is caused by sort of mutated uh, genes inherited from one or both parents, and mutated genes effectively give the wrong, wrong instructions to the photoreceptors. These are the sort of light-sensitive cells in the, in, in, in the retina. Um, and um, uh, so, so, so and, and the problem is with RP, there's so many different gene mutations exist. You know, I think there's over 60 that have been identified, probably more now, actually. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and many more are, are, are as yet identified. So it makes it much more difficult uh, to screen for these, uh, these this, 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 this really, you know, this nasty group of diseases, really. But nonetheless, you know, in my opinion, it's vital that, uh, that if RP is suspected, so if, you know, if, if you've got a child, for instance, who's having difficulty seeing at night, uh, or visual field reducing, it's really important to get the, the, the right diagnosis um, uh, in as soon as you possibly can, really. Um, so I think the future lies in, in, in um, uh, getting some you know, more information about, about the genes involved, uh, getting a screen and getting genetic testing for these, for these patients uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, and certainly there are um, quite a lot of increasing um, ophthalmic genetic centres uh, increasing in, in the country who yeah. will um, um, do the, 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 the clever gene testing stuff um, and, and genetic counsellors attached to these um, centres who will then counsel um, the, 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 uh, the, the patient and the families uh, as to, you know, the implications basically for what is going to happen really. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so I, I think I think there is there is there is some some that some future. The other thing I'd quite like to say about um, the future of screening is that I think artificial intelligence has got a lot to play in that. I mean, this is the, a very new, you know, a buzzword that everybody's talking about. You know, it's not just beating beating grandmasters at chess, but it's also um, quite a lot of med medical stuff can be um, done by by artificial intelligence. And certainly I've had quite a bit of experience in um, diabetic retinopathy, which is obviously much more common. Uh, and uh, all diabetics get their, their retinas photographed uh, every year. And we are using AI, artificial intelligence, to um, spot changes in the retina that perhaps human beings who are very fallible don't, can't spot. Uh, and I notice, and I'm sure that may well happen for other retinal diseases it, as well. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. Um, yeah, it's coming our way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I noticed that some some of the one one there was one application for a research project that from Retina Retina UK this time yeah. around is that that uh, ERGs electroretinograms, which are and I'm sure again you, uh, the listeners will 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 know what an ERG is, but it's basically it's a uh, um, uh, a recording of the retinal. Uh, impulse if you flash a light at somebody's eye basically uh, and people with um, uh, retinitis pigmentosa and other inherited retinal diseases do have um, abnormal ERGs uh, and AI can be applied or maybe able to be applied to these ERG traces and maybe pick up earlier earlier signs of, uh, of retinitis pigmentosa which is really quite exciting um, yeah. and I think that that may well be a, 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 a goer uh, hopefully will be supported by us 
Yeah, so we, um, just to, to follow up on that, a, a researcher that's worked on a project funded by Retina UK, which was a gene, uh, a, a gene hunting project, but at, at its most simple. So looking yeah. for these new genes or new changes in genes that cause RP. Um, this particular researcher was very much at the computer science end of that project and is has now received a large grant from the NIHR, which is the research arm of the NHS, to teach AI to try to recognize genetic faults from retinal scan images. Um, ultimately, the aim is it's some years away from clinical application, obviously, yeah, yeah, but the yeah. ultimate aim is that you can the AI can look at the image and instantly have a really good stab at what genetic diagnosis that might match yeah. up to, which obviously will save a huge amount of time and and uh, you know make everything much more accessible and quick. Yeah. So, Fantastic. Um, I mean it's great news, isn't it? I mean things are moving on, there's no doubt. Absolutely. Um, let's move on to some of these research questions, otherwise um, <laughs> yeah, the, yes, it's been great yeah, the, so far the, and um, really good questions. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, we're, we're, no, no, we're, really good, really good, <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, these, that, that, that's more interesting. I'm now on slightly more dicey ground, I have to say. <laughs> that's okay. Um, a lot of the research questions, we had a lot of very similar, very general questions about research, which is absolutely understandable, kind of what's going on, what are the breakthroughs. Yeah. So I'll just put those to the side for one moment and start with the slightly more specific ones. Um, I'm living with RP, which essentially means my photoreceptor cells are dying, which absolutely does. Why can't we just replace the cells? What are the yeah. barriers to producing these cells and transplanting them to replace my dying photoreceptors? Yeah, wouldn't that be nice to do that, actually? I mean, the, the trouble is photoreceptors are incredibly complicated things. You know, they're, they're basically a tiny, tiny little cell, rods and cones uh, and various other little things as well, which which are incredibly clever. You know, they do actually um, convert the light that we see that comes through the eye, through the cornea, through the lens, into the retina, uh, into electrical impulses. I mean, that's damn clever. I mean, and, and it's really, really difficult to replicate those. I mean, I think the only way forward, really, um, uh, for, for actually reproducing these photoreceptor cells is, is stem cells, really, um, or, or, or genetics. You know, we'll talk about the, the various fields that, that, yeah. that there are, but, but certainly stem cells might be a way forward and and, and growing new photoreceptors or growing new retinas um, on scaffolding in, in the labs and then um, implanting it into the retina um, is 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 probably a, a way forward. But but you probably know more about it than me, Kate. As well, well. I think, <laughs> I, think um, I think typically the barrier, the big barrier to this has been seen um, as the challenge of getting transplanted photoreceptors or transplanted retinal cells to wire themselves in effectively to reach out and connect um, with the rest of the architecture of the yeah. retina. Yeah. So obviously, yeah. if you if you just put the cells in, they have got to join up with the rest of, of the network, if you like, in the retina. And I think that's that's typically what scientists have seen as, as the big question mark. Um, there are also other little questions like immune rejection, although the eye is, Simon, you can probably explain better, is, is fairly protected yeah, relatively from the immune system you do still get a degree of immune response um, and researchers believe that um, transplanted cells put into the back of the eye often do seem to deteriorate within six months or so and that's thought to be due to immune response and, yeah. and the immune system attacking those cells. Um, we are now uh, currently funding a project where a researcher is looking to make um, cells photoreceptor cells um stem derived from stem cells um she's looking to fiddle around with them a bit so that they essentially become invisible to the immune system and uh could be transplanted into anybody's eye um yeah you know regardless of where they came from and would be kind of off the shelf ready to go yeah. so um that's a laboratory project at the moment that's that's very far off any clinical application but that's certainly one potential um way of uh, addressing that problem yeah. so I think those are the sort of two barriers researchers are starting to have recently found that um, photoreceptors derived from stem cells will 
reach out and kind of make a handshake with other neural cells so could potentially reach out and, and wire themselves in and connect to the optic nerve so um, I don't think that that's an absolute no either so I think I think there's definitely potential there um, and we will just have to to let the technology catch up um, we'll come to the other way in which stem cells are being applied uh, in a moment when we talk about more generally about what's going on because there's another property of stem cells which may also help the retina that doesn't involve them actually replacing photoreceptors um, but we'll get to that um, in a moment. And, um, it's and it's very important to stress, sorry to interrupt, it's important to stress that the front of the eye is much, much uh, better protected against immune immunity than the back of the eye. Okay. The back of the eye is nervous system and the front of the eye is, is not, it's is effectively skin um, derived. So, so corneal grafting is very, very successful and, and very rarely rejects. Um, whereas there's the back of the eye, the retina is much more difficult to, to deal with because it's nervous tissue really. Okay, I actually didn't know that there was. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've done loads of corneographs, and they all, most of them, do really, really well. Very, very rarely reject, you know, donor corneas. Um, and, and that cry, cry for donor corneas, please, please yeah. sign, please sign your donor forms. Yeah, that's uh, every day is a school day. Yeah. Um, somebody's asked a question which actually I've heard before, so I think there are a number of people who've seen this particular news article and have been a little confused by it. So I'm going to ask it now. Um, I saw a news clip where a pill carrying gene therapy could be available for RP by 2024. Do you know anything about this? please. Simon and I have had a little uh, chat about this prior to the session. And, and, so. and Kate knows that I know absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I've looked it up. <laughs> but, I, you, but I'll leave it to you, Kate, to explain. Okay, okay. So I think that the news clip uh, was about um, a company called Mirror GTX. I think there was a BBC news clip, uh, and I think it's possibly also been on television in Northern Ireland or Ireland as well. Um, so um, Mira GTX is a biotechnology company which is developing gene therapies for inherited sight loss conditions, um, gene therapies to address specific genetic faults. Um, and they have a couple of those in clinical trials already. Um, they are, let's, gene therapy is never straightforward, but let's say these are um, more conventional approaches to gene therapy where um, the gene is the healthy gene is packaged up in a harmless virus and injected into the back of the eye so that that healthy gene can take over from the damaged gene and start um, producing healthy protein. And I suppose it's possible that Mira might get to a stage in 2024 where some of those clinical trials are finished. There's no pill involved in those ones. But Mira GTX is at a much, much earlier stage with a technology um, that they call riboswitch technology. The, the name doesn't really matter. But this is a technology where there is a, a pill accompaniment to a gene therapy. Now, we don't actually know what Mira GTX, which condition Mira GTX is aiming to treat yeah. with this technology. They haven't stated that yet. That's still commercially sensitive. Um, but the idea is that you still deliver the gene therapy packaged in the virus via an injection into the eye or whatever tissue it is you're trying to treat, but that you separately then give people a tablet. And in the tablet, there is a small molecule, a, a, a more normal drug, if you like, but that substance can act on the gene, the newly injected gene to switch it on or off and control how that gene is, is used. Um, so that is much further off. That's still at the preclinical stage. So that is not being tested in humans at all yet. Um, and in addition, we don't know uh, exactly which eye condition Mira GTX have in mind to try and target with this technology. So um, whoever asked this question, you are far from the only one to be slightly confused by the news piece. Um, so um, 
this pill uh, technology will not be available in 2024. I suppose there's a chance it may enter clinical testing in the next couple of years, but that's as far as it's going to go. It'll just be in a small, tiny number of people. Um, Mira GTX are much closer to the finish line if all goes well with their gene therapies where there is just an injection into the back of the eye, full stop. Yeah. So uh, hopefully... That yeah, and, and I think, you know, I mean, being simplistic, there, I don't think there'll ever be a, a, a simple pill that you can take to cure retinitis pigmentosa, whatever happens, you know, it will be a lot of clever, uh, and it'll I'll probably really still involve uh, injections into the eye, you know, with with all the inherent risks of that. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's not as simple as, as, as it's perhaps made out to be. Um, and the other... Um... Leading on to the slightly more general questions, um, this has come from somebody who's got uh, RP caused by um, the ASH2A gene. Um, now, there are currently um, no treatments for ASH2A mediated retinitis pigmentosa that can change uh, the course of the, the, the progression of the sight loss that's involved. The questioner says, are there any gene therapies or stem cell treatments making progress? And when will clinical trials start? Um, slightly leads us on to the more general question. Yeah. Have you got any comments specifically on therapies for H2A? For general, not, for, not for H2A, but I think generically, I think, you know, the gene editing, um, you know, gene manipulation has, has, has definitely the way forward, really. There's certainly a lot of that going on. I mean, I think basically, you know, we all we all want to know, you know, the, the magic pills and the magic stuff to, to cure this, this, these terrible diseases, really. And I think there are three threads, aren't there, really? One is the gene editing and manipulation that we've, 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 we've touched on um, um, with these clever things called CRISPR, which I can never remember what, the sta what it stands for. But <laughs> something, something, with something with palindromes, but I can't quite remember. Um, uh, and, um, you know, ve vector, um, viral, viral vectors, which I think is really interesting. And, and uh, that's, been that's taken off with uh, the, all the COVID vaccinations and things like that. And uh, I think with uh, those, those sort of uh, um, pressures on, on science, that, that, that may well be COVID might actually be a... Uh, a possible uh, advantage actually you know of actually uh, stimulating research into that form of treatment um plus and there's stem cells which we've also touched about and there's also which we haven't meant really mentioned are the are the bioelectronic um, implants yeah. um, which might you know might that might be a, 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 another way forward i mean that really is sort of a star trek um Geordie, if you're a, if you're a Trekkie, uh, putting on your glasses and actually uh, having your, your retina stimulated by by um, uh, electrodes, um, but I think all these um, uh, and they have been tried and there are and they are they they, they are working to from one extent to another, but it's all nothing. It's it's navigational vision and not much else really, and certainly mm. not de no detailed stuff. The implants are coming back. Actually, I think are, there was, there was yeah. a surge of implant technology yeah. stuff yeah. going on, and it never really got anywhere. And I think no. it failed at a, at a quite late hurdle. But actually, now there's renewed interest, and yeah. researchers are working really hard on improving that technology. Yeah. So I yeah. think there's possibly a future again for implants. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, Sorry, go on. Sorry, and, that, and that's a plug for the uh, Retina UK conference, isn't it? Because I think yes, it's Thank some, you very some, much. <laughs> very interesting lectures uh, about things like that. So, uh, anybody interested, come and uh, come and join the Retina yes, UK conference. Actually, that's brilliant, Simon. Thank you. We can just give that a little plug because we will be discussing actually at both the we have a professionals conference and an annual conference for our community uh, in June. It's the twenty third and twenty fourth, a Friday and a Saturday. Professionals on Friday, community on Saturday. Uh, we'll be talking about things like registration actually and how they fit in and 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 um but also lots of research content as well so um yes with a q a yes so do uh which i'm carrying on to or joining <laughs> online you can either come along in person uh, in london or join us online so um i'll let matt perhaps jump in at the end and say a bit about that but um ush 2a is uh presents certain problems because like other genes, for example, the Stargardt's gene is a very big gene um, and doesn't fit neatly into viruses. Um, so, yeah, gene editing is, is certainly probably um, going to be important for that. And gene editing is a little bit behind gene replacement in terms of clinical trials and things like that. But there is um, 
gene editing, it has reached clinical testing in one particular case, not for H2A, but for something else. And lots and lots of lab research going on on gene editing. Um, so, um, and there are also now more and more things coming through that are not specific to a particular gene. And I think those, those approaches are going to be really important as well, Simon. What do you think? Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, I think it's fantastic. It's really interesting talk, talking to these very clever academics and scientists. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you, you ain't, we ain't seen nothing yet, actually. I think things are going to happen, you know, exponentially over the next few years, which is good, which is very exciting. I you know, hopefully I should be alive to see it. it. That actually does. There is a specific question saying over the last few years, there's, there's been significant progress in the field of ophthalmology. How close do you think we are realistically to developing a cure? This question said for RP. Yes. Um, Yes, and an effective treatment, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yes, cures and cures, aren't there really? It is difficult, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it would be nice to think, you know, I'm 70 now, so in my lifetime, you know, another 20 years, I might, uh, we might see at least some people being, uh, being uh, visually rehabilitated. It would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the challenge is that we've so many people in our community have been told over and over again. I know. Um, there's yeah. going to be, you know, it's going to be 10 years and then it's another 10 years. I know it's another but, 10 years. I know it is, isn't it? And we don't want to raise false hopes. That, that no, would be unfair. Um, um, and and it, we have to admit that it is very complicated. Uh, yeah. And I think they're going to trickle through so that some members of our community are going to be able to access treatments far sooner than others, just yeah, depending yeah, on yeah. their genetic diagnosis. Is. We've got one treatment on the NHS already. Yeah. Um, Luxterna. Luxterna is exciting. Yeah. That's yes. great. Yeah. Um, so that's a gene replacement therapy, but very few people are eligible for that. Indeed. And so we need we need everybody um, to be able to access something eventually. And we just need to keep pushing. Yeah. So give us your money. <laughs> <laughs> pushing at our end. I feel like um, Bob Geldof. <laughs> <laughs> pushing at our end. But um, I mean, there are a lot. There's general questions basically saying, are there any breakthroughs? any general updates is there anything we haven't touched on Simon that you that you um, want to add? I don't think so I mean there are there are a lot of optical stuff coming up you know the 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 the, the, the clever computerized um um uh, bio 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 optic uh, devices uh, that, that that are coming along and certainly uh, the, the fact that you can actually, um, you know, um, digitize all these images and, and magnify them for people with poor vision. I mean, that is quite exciting. And there's a lot more than, than just telescopes and magnifying glasses now. Yeah, there's certainly um, a lot of assistive tech developing yeah. alongside the, the, the treatment yes. uh, science. And sure. actually, treatments now, there are a vast number of approaches being explored. I think probably even since I started with Retina UK almost five years ago, the number of different approaches to yeah. treatment. So you've got gene-based gene technologies, things like gene replacement, which is like Luxterna and gene editing and um, little molecular patches, RNA treatments, where yeah. you just cover up the faulty section of gene. Um, but there are companies now, we've obviously got, we have got stem cell treatments in, or a stem cell treatment in clinical trial. Uh, the J-site treatment that some people might have heard of. So this is being trialed in America, um, but they are, the company is intending to go ahead with a phase three trial, which is the, the, the last phase of clinical testing before applying for licensing for a product. Um, and those cells are just injected into the vitreous. They're just injected into the jelly of the eyeball mm -hmm. with the rationale being that they are not replacing um, photoreceptors that have degenerated. They are simply producing substances that are nourishing and yeah. supporting the photoreceptors that are still hanging on in there and surviving. So um, that's an approach that it looks like is better when things haven't progressed too far, um, but non nonetheless is looking reasonably um, encouraging. And then there's optogenetics as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is about uh, giving cells in the back of the eye that don't normally sense light the ability to do that, the instructions, if you like, to do that and get on with it. Um, as Simon said earlier about the implants, is that's not certainly within our current 
imaginings is not going to be high acuity detailed vision but certainly for somebody with very advanced sight loss who's perhaps only uh, seeing shadows or has no light perception it could bring back enough for yeah. them to, to get Absolutely. around more independently yeah. so mm. I, I could actually I could go on and it's five to eight but there are so many approaches now and encouragingly many more of them are actually not dependent on a particular genetic diagnosis which I think can only be a good thing yeah so. yes. terrific no, it's really, really I'm, 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 you know, every, I mean, I've only been with Retina UK uh, for a year, and 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 the the, uh, the, the all all the comments certainly in the in the in the board meetings, it's actually been really very very encouraging, uh, and uh, and I'm really delighted to uh, be part of this uh, of this team now. It's really quite, it's it's great fun, uh, and we've got some very good people on board who uh, know what they're talking about. <laughs> Matt, including we... you, Kate. <laughs> 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 Matt, Matt, are there any questions we've missed? Oh, keratoconus. Oh. Um, is there a direct link between keratoconus? Am I saying it right? Keratoconus. Yeah, keratoconus. Yeah, and RP. Is there, is there a link between the two? And are there any specific risks to my RP if I go ahead with the surgery, corneal graft surgery? Okay, that's an interesting question. And as far as I know, I don't think there's a there's a, a link between keratoconus. Keratoconus, by the way, is basically a, an abnormal cornea. Um, the cornea, instead of being spherical, is conical. Um, so you get effectively get quite a high astigmatism, um, sometimes um, associated with um, allergies um, and are perhaps eye rubbing, but nobody can really has really related to that. Um, but it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a progressive condition. Um, it often is treated by what's called cross-linking, when you shine um, uh, ultraviolet light um, onto um, the cornea, which uh, which has had uh, riboflavin uh, drops on onto it, which is actually quite interesting. The riboflavin interacts with the um, ultraviolet light and changes the collagen structure, the structure of the cornea. Uh, and that 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 seems to be working quite well, but uh, but the, the ultimate one is is a corneal graft. Basically, you, you take out the uh, the old cornea and stick in a new one. Um, uh, and if you've got RP, um, then it wouldn't make any difference, I don't think, provided your retina is in, in reasonable working order. It's a bit like taking cataracts out of a uh, patient with advanced RP that we've talked about already. Um, so you can replace the optical um, system quite easily, but whether the retina will actually uh, uh, accept that is, is, a, is another matter. Um, but I, I don't think there's a link, as far as I know, between RP and keratoconus. Don't think so. No. Okay. But no, no direct risk to the, to the retina of having the actual surgery. No, no, not at all. No, no, not at all. Okay, great. Matt, um, is there anything else that we've missed or do you want to start wrapping up? I keep going. I mean, this has been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's, been, it's, been an hour. it's been an hour. It's been quite fun. I, I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> so, well, we, there are no more questions that have come through to, um, to our Q and A box. Um, and we've had nothing else other than those that we've asked come through via email either. So um, I think that's brought us to a really nice end to the evening on time. Um, you know what I'm like for timekeeping, um, particularly if you come to conference, which we'll talk about um, in a moment as well. Um, so uh, just a huge, huge thank you, um, Simon, for joining us for this Ask the Expert session. This evening. Um, to Kate as well for, for your input there. Um, as I say, it's been really, really enjoyable for me. I've learned a huge amount. Um, and of course, thank you to everyone who's joined us on this webinar this evening um, as well. Uh, so as mentioned at the beginning of the, of the session today, um, we are planning at least one webinar each month. Over the coming months, we have webinars on low vision services, aids and equipment, um, how you can get involved with Retina UK um, with volunteering. And we've got a really exciting session coming up um, in a few months' time around hair care and styling with uh, a hairstylist to the stars. Oh, uh, so details that's what I need. Absolutely, <laughs> you and me both. Uh, details of these are on our website um, and we'll also send them to you shortly as well. Um, so just a reminder that Retina UK is a registered charity. Uh, we receive no government funding and we rely on our wonderful supporters to raise the funds needed to provide vital services and to invest in groundbreaking medical research. Um, so there's a couple of ways, there's a huge, huge number of ways that anybody can get involved with this. 
Um, so two, just to, to mention briefly, um, is securing support from companies, so from your employers, uh, which could make a substantial impact on our research funding. Companies are much more likely to choose to support Retina UK with workplace fundraising if a member of our community or a friend or family member recommends Retina UK. So if you know of any such company that may be interested in hearing, hearing from us, please do get in touch with our fundraising team. You can do that via email, uh, fundraising at retinauk.org.uk. And if you feel up to a bit of a challenge, you can join um, Team Retina UK um, on the virtual PCS London Marathon, which is taking part in just a couple of months' time on the 23rd of April. If you have 24 hours to complete your marathon, now you can choose to run or walk. You can do it on your own. You can walk with a friend. Um, and you literally have 24 hours in, in order to do um, this marathon. So you do it at your own pace and on your own route. Um, and just by simply raising £145, uh, you could actually fund a research for six hours. So um, worthy calls there. Um, more information on our website, which is retinuk.org.uk forward slash virtual. So we will be sending out an email over the next couple of days, which has got details of where you can rewatch or listen to tonight's webinar uh, and details of how you can book onto our other events. Now, other events, as Kate mentioned earlier, include our conferences, which are coming up on the 23rd and the 24th of June. But we are holding it both physically and online. So if you're able to come and join us in London, um, it's in Marleybone, fantastic venue. Um, you can hear a huge number of um, eminent professors who are coming to join us, talking all things through gene therapies, through to bionics and implants and really, really exciting stuff. Um, and as Ken mentioned, we're also going to be looking at things along the registration process and some of the work that Retina UK are doing to support you within the wider sector. So we have a really, really exciting um, programme coming up. The details of that will be shared with you in the email, which I'll send out shortly. Um, and also they are on our website as well. So final point is we value all feedback and yours today will help us develop um, our webinars and services into the future. So please do just take a couple of moments to fill in the feedback form um, when we send it through to you. So Simon, once again, thank you ever so much for joining us this evening. And Kate, of course, as always, thank you for your support with these webinars. Thank you to everybody who's joined us. And we bid you a very good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.